I think there has to be a significant mental shift that takes place to establish a new way of being. And the mental shift is success for me is prioritizing listening to God and listening to what's happening within me. That's success. As a pastor, as a husband, that's what success. Because I believe if I'm giving myself to the kind of time to be with God and to be with myself and what's happening, that's going to impact all of my relationships. I'm going to come to my church, to my spouse, to my children with a non-anxious presence. I'm going to come with some level of objectivity instead of emotionality. Today on the Transforming Discipleship Podcast, I am joined by a very wonderful man named Rich Velotis. He is a pastor who has grown up in Brooklyn, New York, and has been a pastor of New Life Fellowship, which is a large multiracial church in Elmhurst, Queens. He does a lot of work with a very well-known organization, the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Movement, which was founded by Pete Scazzaro and is continuing to shape the lives of so many people. Rich has graduated with a degree in pastoral ministry from Nyack College, and he's completed an MDiv from Alliance Theological Seminary, and he has written an amazing book, his first book, The Deeply Formed Life, which I personally have resonated with. Rich, it is so good to have you on. I, I was privileged to read this book, to learn about you and Rosie and your family in the Queens area. Thank you for writing it, and thank you for joining us today to chat about this book. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Oliver. Thank you so much for those kind words and glad to be on this podcast and look forward to a good conversation. For those who are listening right now, we hope that this is an episode that you find meaning in and that it touches your soul some way, somehow. Rich, I'm wondering if you could just, I'm sure there are probably people tuning in right now that have not gotten their hands yet on this book. And, and if that's you out there listening, I hope that you are on Amazon right now ordering The Deeply Formed Life. But um, maybe you're not there yet. We'll, we'll hopefully get you there at the end. But Rich, maybe can you can you tell us why you wrote this book? As I was reading it, I continued to wonder what what propelled you to write it. Oliver, when I think about that question, my first thought goes to my particular context in Queens. I wrote this book primarily out of pastoral concern. And I highlight five values in the book, contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. And I wrote on those things because those are the five values of our congregation that uh, make up who we are, that inform our preaching, our mission, our discipleship. It's our five M's. We call it something different at New Life, but it's essentially those five particular areas. So I wrote it because on a given Sunday and in a given week, I would hear lots of people asking questions about when you say contemplative rhythms, what do you mean? When you say racial reconciliation or interior examination, can you explain that to me? And so as I thought about serving the people God has entrusted to me, as well as leaders and future people who are going to belong to our congregation, I thought, let me just try to create something for this particular community. And so much like Eugene Peterson wrote the message out of pastoral concern to try to get his people to understand Paul in Galatians and one thing led to the next where he did the entire Bible, but it started out of a pastoral context for Peterson. 
That's why I wrote this book uh, primarily. But secondly, I wrote this book because each one of these values have impacted me over 20 years. I'm 42 years old. I became a Christian at 19 and I was exposed really early on to a myriad of traditions that exposed me to the life of the kingdom of God and the global historic church. And so these five areas have been in me since the inception of my journey in following Christ as a 19, 20-year-old. But then thirdly, the reason I wrote it was because, and when I say this, sometimes it feels like a bit presumptuous, but I believe it, that I was trying to offer an ambitious reframing of spiritual formation for this generation and trying to hold together aspects of life in God that are often compartmentalized and segmented. So the reason I wrote it, Pastoral Concern, these values have personally impacted me, and I was trying to offer or re-articulate a vision for spiritual formation for this generation. This generation, and that was your last point, I think is, as I read it, I really felt that there was so much here to connect with for this generation. And, and th- when I say this generation, maybe we should even broaden that out a little bit, these generations, because there's a yeah. few of them, I think, that can really connect. Your first whole segment about contemplative rhythms in a very busy, and you frame it, you know, in your own context in New York, which is the city that never sleeps, right? And it's it's busy. Mm-hmm. But I live in Chicago currently. I know people that are living all over big metropolis areas in the world can can relate to this busy, fast-paced, heavily inundated with media, Mm. saturated by advertisements world that we live in. I personally really found it helpful Mm. as a guide almost for how do we navigate it? Well, a lot of the things you were writing, I continue to say, ah, that's how you can say it. Oh, that's so good. I would nod my head and say, you've just given me words which is what a great book does, right? It can give you words for the things that you're thinking or feeling, but you haven't been able to articulate them yet. But I wonder also at the same time that maybe it's also you for yourself too, just continuing to chart your own journey. Was there any of that there? Oh yeah. I mean, when it comes to just writing as a discipline, I know Francis Bacon said, writing makes a person more exact, which is a quote that I heard in my early twenties that I never forgot. For me, you know, I, I write to understand what I believe and to help me understand what I believe. So when I look at my journals or articles that I write, I'm trying to figure it out. And I know there's something in me, but it's only, it's, it's when I put pen to paper that I'm able to go, oh yeah, this is what I believe and how I want to articulate it for myself, as well as for other people that I'm trying to help draw near to Jesus. So what is the deeply formed life? I mean, where does that come from? The deeply formed life is my way of trying to articulate the ancient truth that what Paul gets at in Galatians, where he says, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is in agony for this church that has relied on cultural, ethnic, religious, superficial changes. And he's saying, there's something much more profound that I long for you to have. It's Christ formed in you. And so for me, the deeply formed life is at its core, trying to open up space for the life of Jesus to be formed in us, which is, you know, Paul gets at this in Romans 8 as well, that this is 
this is our inheritance. This is, this is what God has called us to, to be conformed into the image of his son. And so the deeply formed life is my way of getting at that, but it's getting at it through a particular approach of depth and breadth. It's depth in terms of how do we resist superficial answers and look to the depth of our own interior life. But it is also about holding together aspects of Christian faith that are often compartmentalized and segmented. So at the core, the deeply formed life is Christ being formed in us, but through a robust, multi-layered, intertwined set of theologies and practices for the present cultural moment we find ourselves in. That's good. That's so good. They are the five values of new life. Right? Is that what did I catch that right? Yeah, we use different, we call them monastic, multiracial, emotional health, marriage to Christ, and missional in our context. Okay. One language that was a bit, little more accessible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The five M's. I love it. Yeah. So we have these five M's. And in the book, they're the contemplative rhythms, racial justice or reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness. I love that sexual wholeness is part of this. Hmm. And you, you draw that out a lot and you speak really profound, I think points for us to consider and then the missional component as well. I, I love all of that. So as I was reading through it, Rich, I, you even highlighted a little bit in between the lines here in your book. I noticed, and this is what I want to focus on in this episode, there seems to be some common threads or at least one common thread that I noticed that runs through this whole thing. Mm. It has to do with listening. And, and you, you draw attention to that. I want to think for a minute about the concept of listening in the discipleship process, yeah. because I think this is a critically important component to our journey with Jesus, our journey of growing, our journey of becoming like him, having Christ formed in us, as you said earlier. And Jesus is often saying things that the prophet said, do you have ears, but fail to hear, you know, and he's constantly getting after his disciples when the prophets are doing the same thing in the Old Testament about hearing. So, Rich, why... And you draw this out. So why is listening so important to the pro whole process of cultivating this deeply formed life? Why is listening so important in these five values that you have? Because I don't think you can get after these five values without learning to be a good listener. Uh, Oliver, I think at the core, listening in the best sense of the word is about love at its core. You know, I, when I tell my son in one sense, I have a six-year-old and a 12-year-old, she just became 12, Karis, a couple of days ago. You both boys? Uh, a girl, Karis, and then my son, Nathan. So Karis That's is 12. just Nathan. like us. We have a boy and a girl too. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So when I tell them to listen, I don't have love in mind. I just have, just do, do what I told you to do. You know? <laughs> but listening in the best sense of the word is, I think it's, that, it's about love. I mean, I'm reminded, Douglas Steer, this great, Quaker author said that, you know, to listen to another person's soul into a condition of discovery and disclosure might be the greatest service a human being offers for another. And wow. I think he was on to something there about when we are truly listening to someone, it is an act of love. And I think the listening must have multiple dimensions, listening to God, listening within, listening to our neighbor, listening to the world. But at the core of it, I see listening as an act of love. But uh, what also comes to mind when I think about listening, Henry Nouwen, who I have come to love over, I mean, I was introduced to Nouwen maybe one year after he became a Christian. He notes that in one of his books that 
to listen in Latin or obedience rather in Latin is the word to listen. And he makes a connection with listening and obedience in a really beautiful way. And I think when we talk about God, obedience is a word that we typically don't like in our culture. Lots of people don't like it, but when it's seen as listening deeply as an act of love, I think it comes across from a different perspective. So I'd say at a core of why listening is important is because listening is about love. Listening is about love. So that's a brilliant point. Do something loving today. That is so good. You know, the Latin word that Henry Nouwen points out, it's the same as true in Hebrew as well. It's, and you know this as a, as a pastor, the word Shema has this double connotation of listen with your ear, but also obey. Yeah. Do you have ears to Shema? Do you have ears to obey? I think your point about listening being an act of love is so true because that's that's true about God, right? Yeah. It's true about when you and I are talking or when I meet somebody on the street who is a stranger to me. Mm -hmm. Even in prayer, like when we pray, God hears us. He hears our cries. He listens to our cries. And God is not aloof to it. And even in prayer, God is demonstrating this act of love by being present to us, by listening to us. And so out of which we, you know, offer that to the world around us. But, you know, I I think of, and I think I highlight this in the book where someone came up to Mother Teresa asking, how do you pray? What do you say when you pray? And she says, nothing. I I listen. (laughs) And the guy's like, if you listen, what is God saying? And her response was nothing. God listens. And it's like, she's saying, um, prayer is about listening to God listen. And it's just like, and she said, I don't know if, there, if you don't understand that there's no other way that I can explain <laughs> prayer. And I thought that's exact. That's it right there. Prayer is listening to God. Listen, of course, I'm getting at more contemplative prayer. Yeah. But prayer is an exchange of souls, not necessarily the exchange of information or, or, or words. It's, it's a communion of hearts. So at its core, listening is about love. And I think it can, if it can be framed that way, it'll make all the difference in terms of how we think about discipleship and spiritual formation. Mm, that's a great point. How do you go about taking inventory mm. in your own life about who it is or what it is you've been listening to? Um, and how do you recalibrate that for yourself? Do you have any practices mm. built in or things that you do along the way to adjust? Yeah, you know, I think that the biggest, the biggest obstacle, and I hope I'm getting at this, Oliver, the biggest obstacle to listening I have discovered are the voices within that are somehow intercepting or obstructing presence. I'll give you an example. This morning, my wife and I had a uh, quite a spirited conversation. <laughs> Is that what we call it nowadays? <laughs> That's what we're calling it today, at least. <laughs> and uh, there were some fundamental disagreements about how we are seeing a particular issue. And as she was communicating, I realized within myself, I was not, I was hearing a particular script in my own brain, which inhibited me from truly entering into her world. And the script essentially was, if, if you don't agree with me, something's wrong with me. If, or if we don't agree, something's wrong with me. And that was, I mean, I, I could just as I'm responding in a way that was not moving towards her in love, I'm just hearing this script here in my mind. So, so much of the challenge that we have in listening is there's so many scripts within us, messages within us 
there's a delightful book I've been reading came out a number uh, maybe ten years ago or so called "You Are Not Your Brain," and it's it's a book on how deceptive brain messages get in the way of not just our own flourishing, but our, our connection towards other people, which of course contributes to our own flourishing. And those deceptive brain messages are messages that over many years from childhood, from family of origin issues, from traumatic events that just get stored in our brains, as it were, the neural pathways of our brains that are often deepened by various habits and addictions or whatever it might be. And to identify those messages as that is not me at who I am at the core of my life. Those are, it's something else that's getting in the way. Identifying those messages have been critically important to listening. Over 2020 and the beginning of this year, there were a few people who left our congregation because of all the political hostility, the racial injustice, the sermons I started preaching that addressed some of that stuff there. And there were a lot of people who wanted to meet with me over Zoom to have a conversation to share their complaints or challenges they're having with certain things. Sounds like a lot of spirited conversations. Yeah, lots of spirited conversations. And I remember it came to one, it was like maybe four or five in one week. I was just so tired. And one person said, you know, a, a significant leader in our congregation, can we get like an hour and a half to talk? I'm thinking, why? Why do we need the hour and a half to talk? You know, can we, can we do it in 30 minutes? And I realized my anxiety levels, I, I, I realized my breathing getting constricted. Yeah. And an hour before the meeting, I left, went for a walk to try to gain some kind of equilibrium before this meeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sat in a bench outside in, on Queens Boulevard, not two blocks from where I live. I sat down and I was going, why am I having such a hard time entering this Zoom conversation? And I was asking, Lord, what are these stories that I'm believing that are inhibiting me from being present, being non-anxious? And I was able to, Oliver, name seven messages that were deeply in me. And I think part of it was just the Holy Spirit at this point, just helping me to gain clarity. And, And here were the messages that were deep in me. When people disagree with me, it means I'm a bad leader. That was the first one. Two, if congregants and I are not on the same page, I'm doing something wrong as a leader. Three, I'm causing division by bringing up delicate issues. Four, things will end worse. Uh, It'll end in the worst way possible and it'll be my fault. Five, I need you to like me for me to be okay. Six, I need you to agree with me for me to be okay. And then seven, people who leave new life expose my deficiencies as a leader. It was when I got clear in my own soul of these are the messages. These are deceptive brain messages. These are scripts that are deep within me. And when I was able to identify them, and here's what I knew. I know these are not true. I knew theologically they're not true, but my body doesn't know they're not true. My brain doesn't know they're not true. But it wasn't until I I saw it and had some sense of objective distance to look at them on a piece of paper that I was able to say, this is not true. And for whatever reason, that allowed me to enter into that meeting to be present, not to center my own feelings and my own wounds and such, but to be with someone who needed some clarity on some issues and who was troubled and anxious himself. I don't know if we can listen without doing that deep work of listening to ourselves first. 
first of all, thank you for sharing those stories and being vulnerable. And I, one of the things I really appreciate about your book is that you're not sugarcoating anything. You're you're being vulnerable in just the right way as well. I just want to let you know I appreciate that a lot. But those two illustrations you just gave, the one with Rosie, you know, the spirited conversation with Rosie. By the way, I have plenty of spirited <laughs> conversations with Andra, my wife as well. So get you, I get you. And, and the one as well with, you know, the bench on Queens Boulevard yep. and just processing that. You know, I think that there's a lot of people listening right now who are, are maybe they're not in their head. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I, I feel that. I resonate that. That's me too. But I, I think there's a lot of us, myself included, who get to a place where we're unable mm. to think clearly in the moment. And so we escalate the spirited conversation yeah. and we say things we regret, we smash things we don't want to smash, et cetera. And, or we enter into those Zoom conversations with congregants and ministry leaders or people in our small group or whatever it is. And we just let loose, we project, we're unable to really yeah. stay centered and mm. in a good place. So I wondering if you could just help us think well for a minute about some of the ways you have learned that are helpful in listening. How do you slow it down? How do you, uh, what's the wisdom perhaps you could offer us about becoming better listeners so that we can have that deeply formed life and steadiness you're talking about? Yeah, you know, it's a great question, Oliver. And I think very practically, the pathway, before I even get into what are some practices, I think there has to be a significant mental shift that takes place to establish a new way of being. And the mental shift is success for me is prioritizing listening to God and listening to what's happening within me. That's success. As a pastor, that is success. As a husband, that's what success. Because I believe if I'm giving myself to the kind of time to be with God and to be with myself and what's happening, that's going to impact all of my relationships. I'm going to come to my church, to my spouse, to my children with a non-anxious presence. I'm going to come with some level of objectivity instead of emotionality. Tell me more. You want to come to these conversations with this kind of presence from the Lord and you want to, you gain that through listening, but, but help me. Yeah. I mean, some, I think some of us don't even know how to begin doing that. Like, what does that mean? Just like sit still, walk me through yeah. that a little bit. Give me so, some, give me some wisdom on it. I would say two things. And these are two things that I do regularly that I think have helped me, uh, you know, in this spirited conversation with my wife today, I think I was able to catch myself going down a road a lot sooner than I've had in the past. Uh, that's for sure in the past. I mean, and I, I think I kind of document some of this in, in, in the book. Makes me, it, actually, it makes me feel like, oh, you too? Oh, yeah, exactly. good. Thank you. I'm not the only pastor out there. That's <laughs> that's true. Uh, exactly. So I, I would say two things. One is I do think there is something to be said about sitting in silence on a chair, setting a timer for 10 minutes, opening your hands, breathing in deeply, and having maybe a phrase like, Lord, here I am. And having a commitment to doing that a number of times a week. Let's just throw out an arbitrary, let's just say four to five times a week for 10 minutes at a time. I think what that does, number one, is you're creating space for God. The goal is not to get anything out of those moments. I mean, I, I'm for prayer using speech and, and articulating our, our requests before God, but this kind of prayer is about the exchange of heart. 
And so I just say that as a baseline of listening, it requires, I want to listen, I want to be with God. But secondly, along those lines, in terms of listening to what's going on inside, there are four questions we teach at New Life. My predecessor, Pete Scazzaro, created a exercise called Explore the Iceberg. And in exploring the iceberg, it's really about listening to what's happening within through four very simple questions. What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I anxious about? What am I glad about? What am I, it, go, go through those one more time. Yeah. So what, what am I mad about? Yeah. What am I sad about? Yeah. What am I anxious about? What am I glad about? The scandal of those four questions is found in its simplicity. Because these are questions that my six-year-old son can very simply respond to. And at the same time, I've seen doctoral students and pastors who've been there, been pastors for a really long time, not able to access the material beneath their souls to those four questions. So it's scandalous in its simplicity, but it's really powerful. I think if we could create rhythms for asking ourselves that questions formally and informally, what am I mad about? What is pissing me off? What do I need to grieve? What are the losses? You know, mo- I, I think many churches right now, there's a deceptiveness to the life of these churches because they've gone through a pandemic without grieving once. Mm, wow. Half a million people have died, over half a million in our country. That's just yep. in our country. Look what's happening in India right now. It's horrific. And think and about the economic impact on so many individuals and families. Absolutely. The jobs lost, the every the graduations, the weddings, the birthdays, everything that we lost. And we've gone on without actually taking the time to grieve our losses. You could be sure that's going to catch up to us at some point as a community and as individuals. Yeah. It's going to catch up to us in some form or fashion. When we're not grieving our losses, what we're essentially doing is we're finding other ways to self-soothe. And if we're finding other ways to self-soothe to avoid the pain that we find, it's going to lead us in all kinds of addictive behaviors, obsessive compulsive behaviors, because we're trying to avoid. And I get it. For yeah. those who like Enneagram stuff, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I am about pain avoidance. That's how I'm <laughs> formed and shaped. So I've had to press into this very intentionally. But what are you sad about? What are you anxious about? You know, there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians like to never say, you know, I'm, ang- I'm anxious. I if, if feel like to admit our anxiety makes us somehow our, our faith not pleasing to God. Yeah. When in fact, it isn't the naming of our fears that actually draws us near to God. But lots of people don't have even language for anxiety. And then what am I glad about? So I think if we were to wrestle with those four questions, let's just say, I don't want to put a burden on someone. Let's just say on a weekly basis, taking 30 minutes in a given week to say, what have I been anxious about this week? What have I been angry about this week? What have I been sad about? It just allows us to explore the terrain of our souls in ways that help us connect with God, ourselves, and others. How are we going to really enter into the space of other people's anxiety when we have not even tasted our own anxiety and we've been avoiding it? It's going to be really hard to do that. I mean, I ask this question because I think there's just so many people in this world who do not have the ability or the tools to process what you have just walked us through. You know, my wife is a psychoanalyst and I read her parts of your book because I thought, wow, very rarely do we encounter a pastor that can speak the way you did and have and still do about the emotional health and welfare 
in a Christian context and not mm. removing it. You see, what ends up happening is, you know, you have your psychotherapy perspectives that completely are removed and unmoored from any sort of Christian values. Uh, and then you have the other end of the spectrum, which you just said, like, you do, we're never anxious about anything, can't be anxious about anything. And, and mm. I, I grieve that. And, and so part of it all is this key of listening and having the ability to sit still and quiet. And I love every pastor I know who has a deep, intimate welfare in their soul are the ones who sit there with their hands open literally for 10 minutes at a time, silent with nothing. And they've taught, they've walked me through these processes. And it's strange at mm. first. Yes. But it's necessary. Yeah, it's strange at first, but it's necessary. So, Rich, I just I have appreciated a lot of what you have coached us in and challenged us in. It is encouraging to my heart. You know, we can listen with our ears, but maybe can you help us understand how to listen with our heart a little bit, with our soul? Like, how do we decipher? You know, we're sitting there silent for ten minutes, and I'm having my hands open, and I'm doing what you know Pastor Rich has told me to do. How do I know what's my thoughts and what's God's and what's both and what, what do I do there? And how do I dis decipher that? What we're talking about in some sense is contemplation. It is opening ourselves to God to behold the beauty of God. And I think in order to do that really well, I think we need our image or images of God uh, to be healed. And I think our images, the images of God that need to be healed are going to be healed through the beholding of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the full and final revelation of who God is, the perfect revelation of who God is. And in his self-giving love, in his kindness and gentleness, we see what God is like. God is like Jesus. And so I think in some respects, the act of prayer, what I'm talking about here, can never be divorced from the story of scripture and from the revelation yeah. of Christ. And so I'm able to sit here with my hands open, taking deep breaths in and recognizing the, the gracious presence of Jesus because I have so meditated on Jesus in the pages of scripture. I have seen him with the leper. I have seen him with the woman caught in adultery. I have seen him with the outcast. I have seen him whenever my self-righteous self emerges and seen him with the religious leaders. So I have spent so much time meditating on Jesus and his activity so that when I come to sit down in prayer, by God's grace, my imagination has been so saturated through those pages of the gospels. That's not to say that I still don't have material for my family of origin and scripts from my parents and my mother and father that I'm still living into, but I don't think you can divorce that kind of prayer from what we see in the revelation of scripture. I can't agree with you more, Rich. I think that for whoever has these questions about how, how do I know if it's God speaking or not, you know when you have let your imagination run wild through the corridors and hallways of the scriptures over and over again. And you sit there and yes, you have your family of origin stories and oh man, I'm repeating that same pattern that I thought I was going to be a chain breaker of and I'm not. Uh, the Holy Spirit is there too to also guide, I think, in this whole process. And you you note this in your book and I just think it's so key and critical. So I appreciate that. I want, we, this, we could, I feel like we could talk for a long time, um, but I want to be, I want to, I want to make sure we respect your time. I have a lot of just rapid fire questions and then I'm going to give you a chance at the very end, just for whatever last word God got on your heart for us, but I'm going to give you some rapid fire where I'm going to shut up completely <laughs> <laughs> and you get to just answer the question and I'm going to move right on to the next one. Is that cool? Are you good to do All this? Good. All good. All good. Okay. I love it. 
Tell me, Rich, what has been one of your biggest struggles as a pastor in New York City and how have you navigated it? Easy. The struggle has been trying to hold a community together that has significant political, theological, sociological differences. And how have I tried to navigate that? I think more than anything, I've tried to navigate the unity of our congregation by paying attention to my own anxiety. And that sounds probably like, how is that working? I think that's how I try to, my non-anxious presence is the best gift I can give to our community. And so if I'm non-anxious and I'm present, that's going to help ultimately the unity of our congregation. Tell us who Rosie is. Rosie is one, I mean, she is a powerful force of a human being who every single day teaches me how to be human. That's who my wife is. She lives a life of integrity in that what you see on the inside is what you see on the outside. And every single day she pulls me a little closer into trying to live that out. That's who she is. What would you say to someone who's really struggling with anger right now? I would say you probably have a lot of reason to be angry and God is not afraid of your anger and that ultimately your anger is most likely touching a wound, some area of grief that needs to be lamented before God. And so your anger might be a secondary or symptom of something deeper that needs to be brought to God. How have you learned to listen to the enemy as well? I, I've been mentored in one by Pete Scazzaro to recognize and admit the many blind spots that I have, that I have lots of blind spots. And that when someone who can feel like an enemy or might be a downright enemy is uh, bringing something up, it just might be true. But it flows from a particular theological and anthropological understanding that I have a lot of blind spots and I don't see as clearly as I think I do. And how has the pandemic impacted your own relationship with God? Uh, in, in one way, it's helped me to live more monastically because we've done everything from our 800 square foot apartment in Queens. And so I've been here in my monastic cell, as it were. Uh, so it's, that's that's been nice. It's also impacted me. It's been very stressful because I have two kids doing remote school since March of last year. And there's some days where I'm like, how are we going to do this again tomorrow? I have no idea. So that's really imp lots of, I think, more stress than we've ever had before in our home because it's hard to have a six-year-old homeschooled every single day in front of a computer. <laughs> I know I wasn't going to say anything, but I just feel your pain, Rich. And I think there's a lot of parents out there that are just like nodding their head right now. Yes. So stressful. Mm -hmm. How has the pandemic impacted society's ability right now? People in society in general, how has it impacted our ability to listen to each other? I think the, the pandemic sadly has been so politicized. And so be, because of the, the politicized nature of the pandemic, people are firmly entrenched in their own understanding of what's going on or, or how things should be. 
And so on some level, I think because we have not seen it as a public health crisis, but as more of a political football, uh, as a result, I think lots of people have not done the hard work to listen. I mean, but for me, this is a power and principality, Ephesians 6 kind of a thing, more than anything else. Thank you for sharing that. Knicks or Nets? Without question, it is the Knicks. And um, (laughs) the reason I paused on that is because any New Yorker, (laughs) any true New Yorker would answer that question in the way I just did, because the Nets are not a New York team. They're from New Jersey. And so I don't, and I'm from, I live 34 years in Brooklyn. That's why I'm asking. I I know Brooklyn, but they're not Brooklyn. Okay. (laughs) They're not Brooklyn. They're, they're the new Brooklyn that really doesn't count. Oh, Uh, wow. 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 So what about, I say this this as a guy from the real Brooklyn. Yeah. So Jets (laughs) or Giants? I mean, I have a little more grace there, but it's definitely Jets. Uh, But again, But the Jets have been the, the little brother in New York to yeah. the Giants, but green and white all you day. You are. Long. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Rich, I really just, I want you to know this is my first time getting a chance to meet you. And I, I just feel a kindred spirit with you. I really appreciated your work. Thank you for writing this book. I can't wait for the many more that I think are going to come from your hand and pen or typewriter or computer, not a typewriter, computer. I'm very much looking forward to what you're going to continue to um, to bestow for us to contemplate and read through. So I want to give you a chance before we sign off, Rich, do you have any final words to those maybe listening right now that you would want to encourage them in or um, a mm. word that you want to leave them with? Yeah, I think to circle back to how the vast majority of our conversation today, I, I do think the greatest task for pastors the greatest task for leaders, the greatest task for moms, for dads, for uh, every single person listening to this is to listen to God and to listen to what's happening in our soul. And who we are becoming in Christ is the best gift we give to the world and bring to the world. And so the things that we talked about today, the simple five to 10 minute times of opening our hands and breathing in and out and uh, paying attention to those four questions. I think if we did that with regularity, we would see a significant difference in our families and our churches and in the world. So it's in the small mustard seed kind of acts of worship and obedience and listening that the world is renewed. So I would say if we just did that, that would be enough. Wow. I think that is uh, that is a word to take with us on the road here. That is that is a profound statement. I think you are right. I think this world would be a better place if we all decided to to breathe that in a little bit more deeply on a regular basis. Rich Velotis, Pastor Rich Velotis, thank you so much. I feel like we should have had Rosie on the podcast too, just because <laughs> I feel like she's a pretty important person in your life. And you, we, you know, Absolutely. she's. But I, I just I look forward to one day meeting her as well um, if that that opportunity ever arises. But thank you so much. This is the Transforming Discipleship podcast that you have been listening to. It's brought to you by smallgroups.com. We're Ministry of Christianity Today. And we just want to thank you for tuning in. If you are finding this podcast to be inspiring, encouraging, challenging word in your soul, we just 
want to encourage you to, to pass it along and to rate us on whatever platform you get your podcast on. And if you've enjoyed this conversation with Rich Velotis, I highly recommend the Deeply Formed Life book that came out very recently. It's even got the foreword by um, his predecessor, Pete Scazzaro. He's left us with a major contribution in the theological realm. So thank you, Rich. Again, great to have you and have a wonderful rest of your day.